What's your name? Jim Rushford. What are your current jobs right now? I'm currently working as a medical bill coder for emergency room doctors. How many years did you play professional baseball? 14 years. And what's the name of your new book? The Pizza Guy Delivers. The Pizza Guy Delivers. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, my guest is a guy with one of the most improbable stories that you are ever going to hear about reaching the major leagues. As we mentioned, he just wrote a book, and this is one of those stories that it seems like Disney turns into a movie. And as a fitting topper to all of it, he's an Aztec. He went to San Diego State at the exact same time as me. Jim Rushford is next on Life Around the Scenes. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bountain once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Jim, this is such a treat. Um, I'm excited to talk to you and hear more about your story because we both went to San Diego State. I remembered your name and I remember hearing about your story a little bit and I'm excited to dive more into it. So welcome and thank you for being on this podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Josh. Okay, so let's start with the basics for the audience who don't know anything about you. You were not drafted after your junior year at San Diego State. You didn't play a whole lot as a senior and then you don't get drafted. So at that point, for most people, the writing is kind of on the wall that your baseball career is done. What made you decide that I'm not done playing baseball. I want to keep trying somehow, even if none of these 30 major league teams want to give me a shot. Well, at that point in time, I actually did come to that conclusion. And I, I quit for a year. Um, I had an offer to play independent ball, and I just didn't think it was I thought it was like an old man's bear league I didn't think it was a viable option to keep playing I didn't really know much about it but after a year of working low-paying bad jobs I was like well I might as well go play baseball and have a good time so I got back into it um the other motivation was you know after my uh senior year of baseball you know, baseball's over. What am I going to do? I start. I got really into weightlifting. So I instead of going to baseball every day, I was going going to the gym all the time. And I, I my strength increased dramatically. And once my strength increased, I realized I had so much more power and I had more explosiveness and running speed and all these things. And I was like, well, I, I might be a viable player now with these with this added, you know, strength and speed power so i'm looking at your baseball reference page and let's see 1996 you are playing independent ball in the heartland league and you play 40 games 55 plate appearances 1997 you're in mission viejo in the western league it looked like you were kind of a two-way player in 96 97 98 there's no record of you playing ball at all 
then 99, another year of independent ball in the uh, the North, the Northern League, 2000, a fourth year of playing independent ball. And when I'm just looking at your numbers, it looks like, okay, I can see the batting average is going up. The power numbers are going up and it looks like you're getting better and better. But at the same time, at the end of the 2000 season, you're now 26 years old. You've played four years of minor league baseball. Why do you keep playing at that point? Well, there was always, I was improving and there was always stuff going on that was, you know, leading me where I felt like I was getting closer to my goal. So it was always like, well, let's just keep going and see where this leads because I'm progressing here. Um, I didn't worry too much about the age. I just thought if I did well, maybe someone would give me a chance. I mean, there was examples of other uh, players who had made out of independent ball and eventually to the major leagues, which, you know, initially out of college, I wasn't aware of any of that. But, you know, later on, I discovered that. And that, that gave me hope to continue to keep trying. That, you know, after that first year out of college, when I got back in, uh, I actually got cut from the first team I tried out for. I tried out as an outfielder. And so the next team, I told them, well, I'm a left-handed pitcher. <laughs> I knew that was an easier way of making the team. So first I made sure I just made the team. And then once I made the team, I'm like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good hitter too. You know, and I, I got to let me hit. Uh, the following year in Mission Viejo, it was the same thing. I just, I started as a pitcher and I'm like, well, I'll talk them into letting me hit once I get there. Um, but what happened, I had some arm problems and, uh, you know, an independent ball, if you can't pitch for them that day, then you're worthless. So they released me. So once I was released from that, I, that's why that 98, there's nothing because when I got released in 97, I thought, well, I tried, but you know, it's over. Uh, but 99, I was healthy again. And, uh, really what it was, was that 98 McGuire Sosa home run race that yeah. got me really inspired to play baseball again and you know I started I just went out to the men's adult league because I wanted to whack a few balls around and once I got in shape I'm like well this is still this is a little easy for me like and I found this other team that's like semi-pro and it was a little better and it was fun uh and I fully planned on playing for that team the following year I was I, I re-enrolled at San Diego State I was going to get my teaching credential and <clears throat> play a little baseball delivering pizzas all this time a lot of this time that's where the whole pizza guy deal comes from uh and uh you know what happened though was i, I saw this the northern link team the schomburg flyers on wgn one day and i'm like well that would be awesome you know so i went and tried for that team and made it and that's really when things gelled for me you know i i became an everyday position player. I was improving, you know, by the time I was 2000 in Duluth, I had, uh, you know, one league, league accolades and uh, the Brewers wanted to sign me and you know, the career, then the career really happened really late. So let's talk about the title of the book. Uh, the pizza guy delivers. Tell us the number of different jobs that you had in addition to pizza delivery guy during these years. <laughs> so. I laid some man. I mean, I don't, I don't know who our, our audience is, but in San Diego, there was a Boston Market in Hillcrest. So okay. You have to 163. I, I put the sidewalk in there. I was one of the people who did. With Kmart and Mission Valley, I, I built that roof. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know what's there, and I haven't been back for a while, but uh, 
um, I was a stage hand at the San Diego Symphony Orchestra. Okay. Because I, a good friend of mine, you know, was a director and she would hire me to just move the, you know, the equipment and stuff. Uh, worked for a moving company out in Poway uh, one summer. That was brutal. I, I worked downtown at Croce's. Okay. Croce's? What did you do at Croce's? So everything. I I was a bus boy, I was a bouncer, and I was a bar back. Okay. And, uh, my I went to a bartending school for two weeks. Because, you know, I'm just trying to find something. I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, so I'm bouncing around from job to job, and anyway, I can make a buck. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be a bartender, but, you know, I was, had no experience. And Croce's, you know, it's pretty a nice place. You know, they're not going to just take anyone off the street and come behind the bar. So I just got myself in, figuring I would, you know, learn the stuff. And uh, I'd collect the cover at the door on nights I was bouncing. Well, I'd work at Pizza Hut all day in Hillcrest. Oh, it was it moved locations. It was in Mission, what's it, Mission Hills? Yeah. And then it moved, I think it moved over more to Hillcrest. But you know, I'd work, I'd deliver pizzas all day. I'd go and take a shower, put on some nice clothes, go then drive back to Croce's downtown and uh either you know collect the cover at the door or uh bus tables or be a bar back. I did that for a while. Uh you know, what ultimately happened was uh I <laughs> I was supposed to make coffee one time at the, you know, there was industrial coffee makers and I accidentally grabbed two filters instead of one. And uh, the coffee wasn't percolating, but, you know, I was new still and I, I didn't know what I had done wrong. I thought, well, like maybe there's something, a trick to these coffee makers that I don't know. And I asked the bartender, I'm like, hey, it's not brewing, you know, and he's, he went over and he ripped the, you know, the filter holder out and all the scalding hot coffee just went all over him. And he, he, he got second degree burns on his chest and had to go to the hospital. And, uh, you know, also around the same time I was tapping a keg and I didn't, I put the tap in at an awkward angle and it got jammed and I let, I ruined an entire keg of a uh, Guinness. I let all the CO2 out because it was jammed. And I couldn't get it out and all the CO2 spit out. And then like, after those two things, I was like, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. If this, this is for me. I just felt uncomfortable around everybody. So I, I gave that one up. Well, once I got going playing and stuff, I did hitting lessons, worked baseball camps, uh, and that sort of thing. And then eventually I started playing all the winter leagues, like Mexican League, and Dominican, Venezuela, and Puerto Rico. Well, I'm glad that you were a terrible employee at Croce's because if because if you had been a really good employee, then maybe you would have stayed there and you would have not continued to play baseball. So let's discuss. Tell us how you find out that the Milwaukee Brewers, after after all of this time of all of these side jobs and playing independent ball, tell us about the Milwaukee Brewers contacting you and saying we want you to play minor league baseball for us. Well, it's incredible, but like, you know, like a lot of things in life, it's it's just, you know, relationships and, you know, just plus keeping your nose to the grindstone and plugging away and networking. And really what ultimately happened was I had the breakout year in Duluth, an independent league, put up really good numbers and all that. And uh, uh, my original coach from my very first team, uh, the Du Bois County Dragons, uh, had moved had, – moved on in his career and he was now with the Brewers and he saw how well I was doing 
and he saw that there was an opportunity to get me in their system. So he calls me and tells me, and I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, oh, great, you know, because <laughs> just thinking this is just another, you know, someone's just blowing smoke here. And, you know, but sure enough, you know, shortly after that, the, the minor league director, Greg Riddock, calls me and, uh, you know, he's ready to sign me. And, and I got that, he sent the contract and I signed. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until like it showed up in the transactions that I told anyone because I thought I was going to jinx it, you know, because I had been trying, you know, similar, similarly to like uh, an actor trying to make, make it in the, you know show business and all that like like you move to LA and you go to every audition type of thing I was doing that in a baseball sense I was driving up from, up from San Diego to you know LA and Riverside and uh, Orange County to you know play in front of scouts and anyone who might look at me and you know it was just one rejection after another over and over and over so when this finally all came through I, I'm not gonna say anything until it's official because I don't want to jinx it you know but that was it, and all I needed was a chance. I just needed to be in there, in their organization at spring training where I could go head-to-head -head with their guys and compete, you know. But it was the hardest part was just getting that chance. And, you know, R.C. Lichtenstein, who's that first manager, you know, was the one who was able to get that for me. Well, you definitely ran with that opportunity. 2001, you begin the season at single A high desert. Looks like you finished the year at double A Huntsville. You had a monster season. You batted, what was it? Uh, you, you led all of minor league baseball in batting average. You hit 354 combined between the two teams. And I read about how initially baseball weekly credited somebody else with the batting title. Tell us the story of how uh, you talked with your agent and was able to make sure that the, the record was straight, that you led the minor league baseball in batting that year. So, yeah, I mean, I, I had a, just a career year. Obviously I was super pumped and motivated with my first chance in affiliated baseball. And being that I had had so much adversity along the way, you know, it meant so much to me. I, I took nothing for granted. I mean, it was just, you know, pedal the metal from start to finish. And I have a great year, and I'm reading Baseball Weekly, and, uh, you know, it's saying, oh, this year the, you know, single-season minor league batting champion is uh, Hank Blaylock with a 352 batting average. And, you know, Hank, Hank's a San Diego guy, too. He, I think it was San Bernardino High School there. Uh, you know, he's, a, he's like a first-round draft pick, so everyone, the spotlight's on him. And I, you know, I go back to, I, I used to keep notes because, you know, it was before internet or, or, I don't know, I didn't have access to the internet. And, you know, I would just, with a pen and notebook pad, I'd keep what I did every day and the other notes in there. And uh, I, I look at, you know, my numbers, I'm like, well, I bet 354, two points higher than them. And I go back and read the criteria for, you know, what qualifies you for this batting title. And I'm like, well, I need all those. So I called my agent and I'm, I'm like, what's going on, you know? And he called Baseball Weekly, and they're like, you know, we screwed up, you know, and in order to make it up for you, we're going to – we'll do a feature article in, you know, the fall mm -hmm. for you. Uh, but, I mean, that's how that happened. What was it like getting an agent after all of that time of scratching and clawing and driving to different tryouts, and then all of a sudden now you got an agent? What was that like? Well, yeah, maybe – it helped because I, I felt like I needed some kind of guidance and someone who could do the talking for me. And, 
maybe knew a few things, bins and outs. Um, he was relatively new agent. Uh, he so what he was trying to do is tap in on the independent ball players that had a chance. Like he was that's the niche he was going for. So because I was one of the standout independent ball players, that's you know how we got hooked up. But he did. He was an agent for Matt Noakes. He's also a you know San Diego guy. Um, uh, you know he who played many years in the major leagues. Uh, you know Matt Noakes' famous deal was you know Roger Clemens threw a ninety-six mile an hour fastball in his ribs and he caught he just caught the ball. And we, while he's batting, he catches the ball with his bare hands and his ribs, and then he turns around and just whips it back at Clemens and runs down the first base. That's kind of like one of the things he's known for. That's hilarious. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's just good. You know, I just feel like I had someone who might know a little more about things than I did to help me out, you know, and who could do the talking for me. I know you said that you didn't care about the age and you just wanted a chance to play, but when, when you're initially playing, a bunch of guys are three, four, five years younger than you. Did they call you dad or did they call you like old man or like, hey, what was it like playing against Babe Ruth or what were some of those conversations um, like on the bus? I mean, that not so much because, I mean, I was in like high A and I'm like 27 and most of the guys were like 23. So there was a difference, but it wasn't like, too pronounced um and you know i soon moved up to double a and it wasn't about a year later i was in triple a and it was more like guys my age but uh on the tail end of my career uh is actually uh you know when i played for the tucson toros you know skipping way ahead like i'd already quit once but i was laid off from my job so i got back in independent ball for a year it was like 20 2009 you know i'm like 30 I don't know, six years old. And I'm, yeah, I'm playing with guys who are in their early twenties and uh, I had three kids already and I'd wear a, you know, world's greatest dad shirt and those kind of things. To the they call, they called me dad and pops all season. <laughs> and I did, you know, I was kind of like almost like a player coach or I felt like their dad a little bit. It's starting to, it was starting to get a little ridiculous that age difference. Right. All right, well, let's get to the good stuff. 2002, it's your second year in the Brewers organization. Double A, triple A, once again, you're having a very good season. And then you get called up when rosters expand, it looks like, in early September. Tell us where you were and how you found out that you were going to the major leagues. Okay, so the exact moment was I was in Louisville in our final game of the season. And after I went one for three and I came back in the dugout it was still like the sixth inning or something and the manager you know called Milwaukee and told him I was healthy because I had a, I had had an injury just prior to that it's a slight groin pull and once you know I was cleared on all that they they told him to sit, you know have to come up and uh he looked at me and said you know get your stuff you go meet the you know big team in Chicago so you found they, out in the dugout in the dugout yeah. during a game. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I guess the thing was what had really happened is a week before that, the manager called me in and he basically said without saying I was going to get called up because, you know, you don't, normally don't say these things because things can always change. So you usually wait for that exact moment. But he knew I, like, I had a bunch of arrangements I needed to make, having a wife and a kid. And, you know, I didn't own nice clothes. I was wearing, you know, my friend. 
my friend had given me some just some spare clothes he had so I could wear a collared shirt to the field and that sort of stuff. And he wanted me to have a chance to go out and buy some clothes and, you know, make arrangements. And the day, you know, the next game, I come around third base and I feel my groin pull. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I don't want to miss my call up. So if I tell him, I might not get called up. But I'm like, if I play the next day, I might really pull it all away and there's going to be no anything, you know. And I thought, well, you know, so I told him. I got this more minor groin pull and he gets on the phone immediately and calls Milwaukee's like, uh, yeah, you know, like he's pulled his groin and stuff. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get called up anymore. And I was in tears because everything I had worked for, you know, was the rug was just pulled out from under me. And I was wondering, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said anything, but the only reason I did is because I really didn't think I could play through the next few games without a serious injury. Um, and as it turned out, what they did is they just had the trainer work with me and they gave me a couple of days off and they just made me prove on that last day of the season that, you know, I could go out there and play and run down some balls. And once I did, that's why when I came, I came back to the dugout, it was still the middle of the game. He called him and told him, Hey, he's good. And that's when I got sent up and, you know, I mean, I didn't say goodbye to anyone. I just ran out, you know, the back of the clubhouse and, uh, my wife, Danielle, who uh, I met at San Diego State in the dorms at Tanoshka. Okay. Freshman year. She was in the minivan with every you know belonging we had, and our, our daughter, who was only about six months old at the time, our first girl, and I hopped in the car and I said, Go to Chicago. I go, go right, go before they change your minds. <laughs> do, you, do you recall approximately how many days it was between them telling you? you're probably going to the major leagues except for this injury to you were told in the dugout. Yes. You're going to the major leagues. It was a week or less. Okay. Was that like the longest week of your life? <laughs> what? Uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. That was, uh, that's why I was like, when they told me, I didn't say bye to anyone. I didn't, I don't even think I took a shower. I just grabbed <laughs> my stuff and I, I'm like, let's go. <laughs> like, you know, not like they can't just change their mind and, turn you around or something but I, I was just like i'm just gonna go before they can you know so you meet the brewers in chicago they're playing the cubs at wrigley field you're from illinois i mean again this is where like the disney movie comes up i read that you went to like like baseball camps of the cubs tell us about arriving at wrigley field and even just getting to the clubhouse and convincing people yes i'm a major league baseball player yeah, I grew up a Chicago Cubs fan. I only went to San Diego State because I want to get out of that cold weather. Um, I was actually supposed to make my de debut a couple of days earlier in Cincinnati, but because of this groin pull thing, it you know then the next series was in Chicago against the Cubs. It kind of felt like okay, well maybe this is fate. Like maybe I'm supposed to start here, and that this all worked this way for a reason, you know and. I don't know. I get I get to Chicago in this great hotel, but I haven't seen or talked to anyone. You know, at this time, I don't even know if if I had if I had a cell phone. You know, it was one of those archaic cell phones. I didn't have a single phone number. You know, I wasn't on a computer or the internet. I'm just like I don't know where where I'm supposed to go, when I'm supposed to be there. But I knew what time the game was. I knew where Wrigley Field was. So I just took a guess. I went a little extra early, and I 
get to Wrigley, and the first thing is, you know, an old coach I had had an independent ball in Schaumburg, which is suburb of Chicago, and he and he wanted to greet me and welcome me to the big leagues, and you know, I was really thought it was it was really nice, but I was stressing really hard because I'm just like, I don't know what I don't know if I have time to talk right now. I got through <laughs> this thing. <laughs> So we talked for a minute, and then I'm like, okay, how do I get in the stadium? I don't know. Like, how do players get in the stadium? I have no idea. You know, I think I just went around and started asking people who work there. I'm like, uh, I'm a player. Where do I go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, are they going to believe me? And, you know, I when I get in there, uh, first of all, I mean, Wrigley probably has been remodeled and refurbished since. Actually, at this time, it was – I don't know if anyone recalls, but this is 2002, and the, the the ceiling in the concourse was falling down and hitting people in the head and stuff. They had sections taped off, so that you know fans wouldn't walk and get hit by falling debris and stuff. And it, it was just it was kind of a dump, you know. And the visitors' clubhouse was so tiny. Uh, the one I had had in AAA in Indianapolis was so nice, but you know, big league, it's the big leagues. I get in, I I first you know I see my uniform hanging you know, on the, my locker, rush for 33. And, you know, I didn't know what number I was going to be in. I'm like, cool, at least they picked a good number for me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, the guys start rolling in. And I get I get out to the field and the Cubs are taking BP. And I just see Sammy Sosa hitting BP. And, I'm, you know, and he's one of the reasons. He's the reason I got back into baseball. The final times was him and McGuire hitting the home run. So, I'm like, well, how fitting is this, you know? And I was just staring at him and on. He just saw me gawking. So he just walked right over to me and introduced himself. And, you know, I say who I was. And he's like, the pleasure is mine. Like, like I was a big superstar. He was the good call up or something. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> a really nice welcoming, you know, and then we take BP and I'm just, Pump, smashing balls everywhere, and the coach is like, hey, "Take it easy, you know, you're swinging too hard." <laughs> and uh, yeah, the game starts, and I was so nervous, so nervous, and uh, uh, you know, I remember just it's like the third inning, and I, I look at the clock, and you know, or in the scoreboard, and it's like one hour has passed, and it's the third inning. I'm like, I feel like I've been playing for you know, 300 hours straight and I haven't slept or ate. Like I was just so, I don't know, strung out feeling or something like I was, time was distorted. I was exhausted. <laughs> um, turned out like I had dozens and dozens of people I knew from my childhood at the game. And it's not, it's not because they were coming to see me. They didn't even know, but it's just it was a Friday night game at Wrigley Field and they had gotten off work and they are going to catch a Cubs game, you know, and, and then they couldn't believe it. They're like, Hey, I know that guy, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, very first play, ball hit to me. It was one of the really tough play. Like, it's twilight. The ball's blending with the sky. Fred McGriff hits a pop-up down the third baseline in foul territory. And Wrigley's got those, you know, the mounds, the bullpen mounds are on the field. And I'm trying to track the, the flight of the ball through this tough sky. And while I'm looking at that, I'm running up the front of the bullpen mound uphill catching the ball and then a runner's tagging from third. So I have to step down the back of the mound to make the throw. And I mean, I caught it. I made a perfect throw home. It was bang, bang at the plate, but the umpire called him safe. And the manager 
came out and argued, but I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Can you start me out with an easy one? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and I, you know, but the cool thing, like stepping that because I was always a pitcher and a hitter and we didn't know which, nobody knew what I was going to be better at or anything. I thought it was kind of cool that my first play, I was throwing it off the mound but right. as a position player. <laughs> and, um, you know, in the inning or two later, I, I made an error and man, the fans were just, tearing into me oh, I was mortified and then another inning later I made an unbelievable diving catch and uh you know I, d- I didn't get a hit in the game but I go home I turn the you know ESPN and like there's my error there's my diving catch there's my <laughs> error there's my diving here for 24 hours straight like, oh my gosh, everything I do is now going to be under the microscope for the whole world to see, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this is a lot, you know. <laughs> That's an incredible debut because of all of those things that you described, and 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 I love it all. Um, tell me about just like you said, everything's under a microscope now. You you were this no name guy for your entire life, and now all of a sudden, yeah, your 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 failures and your successes are on TV, and people are writing about you and booing you in the crowd and everything else. Yeah, I was, I was a little unprepared for it because, I mean, I had been in all sorts of high-pressure situations, and like, I was always considering myself a clutch player. I mean, I definitely was. But the difference was all the way up until that point, I was just the guy that got passed over, that was underestimated and underrated, that was getting the short end of the stick, and I had a chip on my shoulder, and I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to prove you wrong, and – I mean, I was like me, I was the challenger c- coming for the champion, you know? And I did. I mean, I, I mowed down everything in my path and I got there. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, you're a big leaguer in the starting lineup. I was like, I don't know how to see things from this perspective because now I'm, I have the title and everyone's trying to come and take it from me. And I was like, this is, I was like, I never even thought about that because I was so used to being the other way around the whole time. And, um, uh, I felt the pressure of having something to lose Mm -hmm. for the first time. And that's what kind of messed me up. And uh, it it made it hard on top of just the big leagues being a step up in ability and play, like just trying to relax and have that focus and stuff. uh, I think, you know, kind of prevented me from like really doing what I was capable of. So I, I struggled, you know, I had a couple of nice moments, but it was a struggle for me and it didn't, in the end, it wasn't so great as far as my numbers. Well, let's talk about one of those big moments, September 13th, you're in Arizona and Rick Helling is on the mound and you hit your one and only major league home run. Tell us about that at bat and that feeling floating around the bases. So Arizona's going for the playoffs. Milwaukee's having, I think one of their two worst seasons in, Brewer history were the worst one up until that point. And uh, we got over 100 losses. But it's middle middle of the game, and I don't know if it's close. I can't remember. But I'm up, and Rick Kelly's pitching, and I get the two strikes, and he's trying to, like, you know, throw that put-away pitch, and I'm just following him off, following off, spoiling pitches, you know, because they're all – it wasn't anything I could do much with, but I'm just staying alive for the next pitch, you know. Finally, you know, I get, like, five, six foul balls in and 
he throws a hanging curve like it just didn't he didn't bury it enough down and in I'm a lefty hitter and uh I just dropped a head on that thing and I felt it come off the bat I'm like oh I got this one but man I pulled it right down the line you know zeroing in on every pitch leading up to zeroing in zeroing in and then finally like okay I had it all measured out and sized up and you know I got this one it's right down the line and I'm like, I hope it stays fair, you know. <laughs> and I'm running the first base, but is it going to be fair? Is it going to be foul, you know? And it, as I'm, like, getting the first base, it hits the right field foul pole and caroms into the bullpen, which was our bullpen. And umpire, you know, he puts his hand up in there and he's signaling for home run. And, oh, my God, I just, like, I started, you know, this massive weight came off my shoulders and I was just floating in air. And then, you know, I probably ran pretty fast around the bases for a home run, but trot, you know, but it was just like, you know, I knew the whole time. I'm like, it doesn't matter what happens from now on. I hit a home run in the major leagues. It's in the books. It's official. That will never change. I mean, I honestly, everything I did the, in the 14 years prior and after and every, you know, failure and all the pain and everything else and all the work, I could almost say it came not it, it all culminated in that one, you know, 20 second trot around the bases. Like it was all for that one moment. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, needless to say, I was pretty happy. And I still, you know, that was, that's still like the most important thing that happened in my whole career. Yeah. Okay. So you've hit this home run. And if this was a movie, then we pan to your wife and we pan to the kids and everyone's smiling and crying and happy. And then the credits roll, and, and that's the end of the movie. But in real life, that's not the end of your baseball career. I mean, you kept playing. You played another eight years. You were back in AAA with the Brewers, AAA with the Rangers, AAA with the Phillies for three different years. You played winter ball in Venezuela. You played in the Mexican League. You went back to independent ball and played in Tucson. At that point, you've reached the goal. You've been to the big leagues. What's your motivation to just keep playing this sport now over and over again? Well. You know, I didn't solidify myself as a big leaguer, so I really, you know, I wanted to get there and stay there. That was a big thing. At that point, I was out of my original six-year contract, which you get paid nothing. But so now I could uh, sign as a free agent, and actually, I made you know salaries that were I could live off of. So it was, you know, became a good employment too. Um, and yeah, more more of my career happened after the major leagues and before it really. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm always there, right at the cusp, playing in AAA and in these you know winter leagues and stuff. So it's like you got just, you know, it's like buying a lottery ticket every day and hoping you know, like you're gonna get that winning number one more time. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that was most of it. You know, and then you know, I had like you know I said earlier, like I I had quit out of college. I had been um you know, forced into retirement with an injury a second time. So I already knew what it was like to not have baseball and, you know, not be playing. And I knew that's not, I didn't want to go there again. So I'm like, I'm in and I'm going to stay in until they make me leave, you know? Well, let's talk about this book. Now it's been 12 years since you last played and I definitely understand having writer's cramp, <laughs> but um, 12 years later, you now decide to do this. Why now? And what was the process like writing this and reliving all of these moments from your career? 
Okay, so the idea of writing like a baseball autobiography uh, existed right from the beginning. I think, I mean, even when I was just going to tryouts and getting cut and all that, in my mind, I was writing a book how I was going to make it, you know, like, so it was always in the back of my head. And once I got out of independent ball and affiliated and I was zooming through the ranks, you know, you should write a book, you should write a book, you know, um, there was, you know, and uh, I didn't do it then because I just didn't want that added pressure while I was playing. Uh, plus the story wasn't over yet. And, you know, the story should have ended. I hit the home run like, and, you know, the credits start rolling up or something and everyone's happily ever after, but that's not what happened. So, well, this story isn't over yet. And I, I actually kind of gave up on the idea. I'm like, well, so much for my, you know, Disney movie because <laughs> it did, I actually did, it didn't work out in the end, you know. We didn't have that Disney ending. But the other thing was I also sat on it for like another decade because – Along the way, you, you hear all these guys' stories and stuff, and you're like, well, everybody has, like, these awesome stories. Like, my story's not special. It's just another good story, but, you know, why, why am I so special that I'm going to write a book and anyone's going to care, <laughs> you know? Uh, but what really did it was as recently, you know, just I ran this guy, Andrew Martin, called himself the baseball historian. He has a blog, and uh, he's been he's, he's a published author, and, he asked me if I would answer questions for his blog. So he gave me like 10 questions. So, I, you know, I took it to heart and I gave some good answers and he published it. And I was like, well, these are, these are good. Let's, you want to write a book? Let's do some more. And I'm like, mm, you know, okay. So he gives me like, you know, a dozen more questions. By the time I had answered all these questions, I'm like, well, I pretty much have written a good portion of my autobiography right here. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because it's hard to re remember things, but when you, when you're writing and you can, if you can, tap into those memories and stuff they're they're there somewhere buried in your head like you really have to almost get in a you know meditative state but i started pulling more and more out and remembering more details and what and stuff and i just kept writing and writing and writing and uh, it was you know, actually like uh i was working at the copper mine driving a haul truck which is you know those massive dump trucks are like as big as a house 12 foot tires that, that was my job was my career ended i did that for 14 years and uh we went on strike the union went on strike i went on strike so I would, i'd sit out at the strike line and i would just write my book while i was you know getting my doing my strike line time <laughs> making use of my time and uh I, it was one of those things where i'd work feverishly for a while and then i'd forget about it for months at a time and then i'd come back to it but i knew i was going to finish it at that point like i was committed Finally, just the timing seemed right. I'm like, let's get this checked off the bucket list. Let's get this thing published. And, uh, you know, Andrew wanted me to, you know, find publishers. And I'm like, well, that's going to be another bunch of years trying to, I'm like, forget it. I'm just going Kindle Direct Publishing and I'm throwing it up there myself. And I only wanted to sell 12 copies that, I don't know why I picked 12, just double digits and something more than 10. You know, in sell something, you know, to someone other than my family, you know, I really wrote the book because I wanted something for my kids and my grandkids, and I wanted something to put on a coffee table. It wasn't <laughs> I, I wrote it for myself, not for everyone else, but uh, it is a story of determination, never giving up. It also gave me an opportunity to thank all the people, you know, that helped me along the way. Uh, you know, it's to 
motivate guys who are doing it right now to keep persevering. And, uh, you know, I think this first edition, I'm, I'm in the middle of another edit right now. I just figured I'd throw it out there, get it going, and, you know, I could fix stuff on the back end. But, man, the response was incredible. Like, everyone I knew was buying it and stuff. And I'm like, well, if I want to fix anything, I got to fix it quick before the, <laughs> before the copy with all the mistakes go out. So, yeah, I'm about to do a resubmit of that. But, yeah, it feels great to just have something I can hold in my hands and look at as real and, and you know, to have it done. And, uh, you know, I think I, I was able to express everything in my head that I, you know, over the years that I, all the stories I wanted to tell and I wanted people to know about me. Well, I like your story so much because, again, we went to San Diego State at the same time, but also someone who works in AAA right now, you know, I've been at AAA for basically a decade broadcasting games. And all the time I see players get called up to the major leagues. And sometimes it's a first round pick and you just know that this was meant to be, they were always going to get their shot unless they really messed it up. And then I hear other stories. Like we had a guy named Winton Bernard this past year, another San Diego guy, and he made it after 12 years in the minor leagues and at age 31 at the time. And those moments are just so beautiful. And, um, so special because it's against all odds. And, and I love when just when people see that and how that can inspire them with whatever it is that they're doing in in, in their life. Um, I'm wondering if there's anyone who's come up to you either during your career or after your career where they heard about your story and it inspired them and it really um, touched you that that'd be uh, a good one to share. Yeah, I got it. I don't have these ones in the top of my head, but I mean, I had a kid I went to all the way through high school with <laughs> at some point he got in touch with me on social media he said uh that my story inspired him to climb mount everest what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh you know i've had a bunch of like my college friends from San Diego state you know like it, it inspired them in their careers and um you know i i know i guarantee i've, I've kept a bunch of people trying and playing you know, but, you know, not giving up for sure. sure. You use the phrase meditative state about writing. Um, let's talk more about that. T tell me more about whether, whether you're home or whether, like you said, you're on the picket lines about when you get into that meditative state of just really locking in on the emotions that you were feeling um, at the time as you kind of relive that and get those words down. Yeah. So, I mean, what really did it was getting these questions from Andrew because it forced me got to answer his questions. What happened to go with my memory banks? What happened? Uh, but when you get into that state, I mean, when I start thinking of different things that happened, I mean, I'll laugh out loud, tear. I start crying as I'm writing this stuff because I'm reliving the moment. Like it's, you know, like it really happened, you know? And when you're, when you get in that, you know, mental state, that's when, all the good stuff starts pouring out and you know, the, every last little detail comes back to you and all that kind of stuff. When you were a student, whether in high school or college, did you enjoy writing? Were you good at it? Or what was it like writing this book? I was always a pretty decent, I was always a pretty good writer. Also, you know, I'm a horrible off the cuff speaker. Like this, this might be the best interview I've ever done. I, I, my mind goes blank. I get nervous. I forget where I am in the story. I can't think of the word. 
but for some reason when I write and I have time to think about the things, it's, everything I want to say comes out the way I want to say it. Let's talk some more about San Diego State. You said that you lived in Tonochka dorms. I was in Olmeca. I believe it was the same fall 91, spring of 92, um, mm-hmm. freshman year. Just tell me more about some of your your just best memories of attending San Diego State and playing for Jim Dietz and the Aztecs. Yeah, we had, uh, you know, they put the baseball players in Tonoska that year. And I had uh, Doug Webb was my roommate who eventually got, I think he was a third round pick by the Brewers. Remember, uh, it was the East Commons. Uh-huh. You know, the cafeteria and I'm telling my buddies, I don't know, we're talking about girls or something. I'm like, I don't want a girlfriend. I, you know, I'm here to play baseball. <laughs> and as I'm saying it, I look up and there's this hot chick, you know, like beautiful coming out of the cafeteria line. I'm like, unless it's that girl right there. Like, <laughs> you know, and the one player's like, oh, I, I know her, you know. And it turns out she lived in Tenoshka. I was on the third floor. She's on the seventh floor. And, uh, you know, she dropped by a few times and I blew her off because I was just like, you know, this is not going to happen and stuff. And then finally, one night, uh, you know, it's Friday night. We're supposed to have practice Saturday morning. And I'm like, I better stay in and get my sleep and stuff. And I can just hear all those other students out there partying and having a great time. I'm kind of getting, well, what these are more colloquial, uh, you know, recent, you know, I'm getting FOMO, you know, I'm just, uh-huh. like, <laughs> I just I'm like, I need to, Oh, I do something. And then all of a sudden, you know, my phone rings and uh, it's my, it's this girl, you know, and uh, I don't know if you know, remember like the dorm room extensions, it would just go up one by one with the room numbers and floor numbers and stuff. And she had counted backwards from every dorm room from the seventh floor down to the one I was in the third floor to, to determine what my phone extension was. And she, she had been down in Tijuana partying. So she's feeling pretty good. And she's like, oh, I'm coming down here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. And she just hung up the phone and she's coming. Door knocks. Yeah, I got to get up early for baseball. You know, like I can't. And finally, she's like, all right, well, I'm not leaving till you kiss me. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, because she's beautiful. I mean, that's of course. I'm. So we start making out of the doorway of a Hall, and also I hear cheers coming from all the way down the corridor, the third floor to Nozka. I look up, and you know everyone's got their head hanging out the door, and they were watching the whole thing. <laughs> saw they saw what was happening, and uh, that was Danielle, my current wife, and you know we haven't left each other's side since that fateful night. <laughs> well, I don't know what minute we are in this podcast, but we finally got to the best story. I thought the best story was you going to the major leagues, but the best story is that you met your wife in the freshman dorms at Tochka and, and the fact that she figured out what your extension number was. Um, I had friends who did the same thing, or at least tried to do the same thing in those dorms. That's beautiful. And you're still together with three kids now. Yeah. yeah 25 years married. I think it's 31, 31 together. And she's been through the whole thing with me. You know, she's with yeah, me. Yeah, tell when... me more. Yeah, tell me more about how she motivated you and kept and, and told you. I, I mean, I guess she's she told you to keep trying and keep playing and you know, we'll figure this out together. Tell me more about what she meant to you. Oh, I couldn't have done it without her. She just, you know, provided the 
foundation I needed and she took care of all the things that I couldn't do or didn't know how to do. And, you know, especially down the road when we, you know, started bills and kids and things like that, she was holding it all down. I was doing my thing. And, you know, if I come, I'm upset because I'm not hitting good or something like that. She, she's like my hitting coach and my psychologist and, you know, everything, you know, like there's no way I'm making, I'm making it without her, you know? And, uh, you know, the best part is that it's not like I had millions of dollars and, you know, she, she likes me all of a sudden because I, you know, I might look a lot better with millions of dollars, but she's with me through all the worst times, you know, no money, no job, you know, down on my luck, everything. And, you know, she's, she's with me, you know, through thick and thin. Ah, it's a beautiful love story. It really is. It's awesome. All right, Jim, I think that's a good place to end it right there. Um, thank you for your time and for your story and congratulations on this book and everything else. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Josh. Once again, that was Jim Rushford, and this is Life Around the Seams. <laughs>